Good morning and welcome to a Tuesday edition of the Christian Underground News Network. I'm your host, Kurt Chamberlain, and I'm delighted that you've decided to drop in today and uh, continue with us uh, on our reading of the book, The Judas Epidemic, Exposing the Betrayal of the Christian Faith in Church and Government, um, a book that I wrote back in 2012. I hope that you're enjoying the reading of it. I hope that you're gleaning some information. Uh, I hope that uh, that you're you're able to take away something uh, critically important from the reading of this book. Um, it is detailing uh, basically uh, the basis or the foundational. Uh, philosophical thought form that uh, has taken root in our society way, way back in about the 30s or 40s, uh, and then and has gained phenomenal impetus, uh, and we're seeing the results of uh, the years of application of this uh, deceitful, heretical, apostate betrayal of the Christian faith uh, in our churches and especially our government. Uh, it's, this is the result of many years of adherence and propagation of this uh, false philosophy. And uh, I hope that you're, you're tuning in and, and uh, listening very, very carefully. Now, we left off last session uh, close to the end of chapter 7, I believe. Uh, yes, chapter 7. And so we're going to finish up chapter 7 this session, and then next session we'll start chapter 8, which is going to be uh, a longer chapter uh, packed with lots and lots of information uh, on the basic foundational premise of New Age movement, philosophical thought form, uh, the very thing that's ruining this country today. So, and when I say ruining, I mean it's ruining it. Yeah, I think you, you can obviously see it, uh, not only our country, but uh, many, many, many other countries around the world. So let's pick up where we left off in Chapter 7, uh, entitled, Let Us Entertain You. We're talking about... Uh, uh, we're reading about the entertainment in churches and uh, how important it really is not uh, and the focus that's being put on it. So uh, we left off on page 78, uh, and I believe it was um, the last paragraph that we did last session was we were talking about fear being a motivation for the, the ecumenical drive that most churches seem to have today. Um, and I said, I'm not stating that it is the prime motivator, but very possibly is one of them you can decide for yourself. But let's go back and look at something Spurgeon said about the process of adoption of false doctrine by the church. How does it happen? Spurgeon said, and I quote, from speaking out as the Puritans did, the church has gradually, number one, toned down her testimony, 
two then winked at and excused the frivolities of the day. Three, then she tolerated them in her borders. And four, now she has adopted them under the plea of reaching the masses. End quote. This, according to Spurgeon, were the four steps to the doctrinal erosion of the church, and he recognized it in the 1800s. Folks, it's still happening today the very same way. But why is it still happening? Shouldn't the church have recognized these errors and corrected them? You would think so, wouldn't you? Why hasn't that happened? Here's why. It's critical for a church leader to recognize heresy and apostasy when he sees it, because then he can make sure that the church avoids falling prey to it. But the real problem is this. It's the heretics and apostates that understand the same process, and they continue to use it because it is successful for the most part. Even guys like Warren and McLaren know the process. Look at what McLaren says about fundamentalists in a new kind of Christianity on pages 177 and 178 of A New Kind of Christianity. He says, quote, first they oppose. Now he's talking about fundamentalists here, folks. He says, quote, first they oppose, condemn, and reject new approaches. Then they modify and make small concessions. Then they go silent for a while, and finally they tolerate and accept what they once condemned, unquote. This sounds exactly like the process Spurgeon was talking about, doesn't it? That's because it is. Dear Christians, isn't it obvious that this four-step plan to corrupt the church was a template for the church's destruction way back in the 1800s? And it has been successful from then until today, as we can see more and more churches today with female pastors, Scripture opposes it, and homosexual pastors and bishops, Scripture opposes it. Yet today, we see this liberal theology running rampant and taking full control of the church's agenda. The church appears to be accepting the things that the Bible condemns, and the church seems to be integrating these things at a meteoric rate. What we see the church doing today is truly a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Here's what the Bible predicted in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Quote, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Unquote. You see, this apostasy, this falling away, is something that we as Christians know will happen. 
It is a sad yet unavoidable occurrence, according to Bible prophecy. God has a reason for allowing it to happen. It fulfills end-time prophecy. Apostasy of the church is just a part of what will need to happen in order for the Antichrist to rise to power. The Antichrist, of course, will be in control of a one-world government, a one-world economic system, and lastly, a one-world religion. This one-world system will ultimately be defeated by Jesus Christ upon his bodily return to earth, his second coming. Even though this falling away of the church is irrevocable Bible prophecy and most definitely will happen, we as Christians are still admonished to rebuke heresy and apostasy when we see it. We are commanded to be watchmen on the wall and sound the trumpet when we see the enemies approaching. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16 says, and I quote, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Unquote. Now, this is a very clear admonishment to Christians regarding the recognition of false teaching in the church. We are to rebuke those who teach false doctrine and rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. I, for one, intend to obey God and do just that. This book is intended to be a sharp rebuke of these false teachings in the church, and I do it unapologetically. Hopefully, some of these false teachers will see that they have erred from the truth and will repent of their sin and commit to being sound in the faith once again. That is my hope and prayer. It saddens me greatly to see these things happening in the church. The main reason for their occurrence is that the church is beginning to forsake sound doctrine and instead is placing its emphasis on unity and experience in order to reach the masses. This is a grave error, but you can see it happening at an alarmingly high rate. Men like Rick Warren are telling people that their doctrine, you know, what they believe, is not important. Here are a few examples. In the Purpose Driven Church on page 56, paragraph 3, Warren says, quote, They say, if you'll just stay doctrinally pure, preach the word, pray more, and be dedicated, then your church will explode with growth. It sounds so simple and spiritual, 
but it just isn't true, unquote. This statement leads me to believe that staying doctrinally pure just isn't a real high priority for Dr. Warren. What do you think? In the Purpose Driven Life, page 34, paragraph 2 and 3, Dr. Warren says, quote, From the Bible, we can surmise that God will ask us two crucial questions. First, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? God won't ask about your religious background or doctrinal views. The only thing that will matter is, did you accept what Jesus did for you, and did you learn to love and trust him? Unquote. Here Warren is again stating that your doctrinal beliefs are not important. Well, they're not important to him and not important to God, according to Mr. Warren. Did you get that? He says that your doctrinal views are not important to God. I'm going to have to take issue with this statement. If God doesn't care about doctrine, why would he tell us again and again in Scripture that there is such a thing as false doctrine? It's because God does care about doctrine. He does care about what you believe. Warren's statement here is absolutely in contradiction with God's holy word. What Warren is telling people is a bold-faced lie when he says things like this. The Apostle Paul speaks of how important doctrine is to God in Titus chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, when he says, quote, In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Unquote. Sounds to me like doctrine is very important. Paul speaks of the gravity and sincerity of doctrine. Paul mentions that anyone that does not place importance on doctrine should be ashamed. Paul says that our lives should be lived in a way that adorns or confirms the, quote, doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things, unquote. Now, telling anyone that their doctrine is not important is heresy plain and simple. That's what God's word says. No question about it. Well, if you're not going to tell people about the doctrine of God our Savior, which is obviously important to God, then what will you place the importance on? Oh, that's right. We know the answer to that already. You'll place the importance on something like, oh, entertainment. That's far more important than the doctrine of repentance and salvation. That must be the only way to reach the unsaved. Entertain them. And folks, that is exactly what churches all around our nation are doing. They are following the example of Warren's Saddleback Church. They are choosing to cater to the unsaved by speaking 
thinking, singing, dancing, and acting like them instead of telling them the truth in a spirit of love. Compromise with the world leads to nothing but a falling away from Christ. And the unsaved need to see what a difference Christ makes in one's life. They need to be convicted of their sin, and that can't be done by allowing them to continue in their sinful worldly ways. They need to be made aware of the differences between Christians and the world, not to be made to think that there are similarities. The church does the unbeliever no favor by making them comfortable, for they need to feel uncomfortable with their sin and repent of it. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with employing certain technologically advanced tools in the church. Using PowerPoint to teach does not compromise the gospel. State-of-the-art sound systems are okay. That doesn't compromise the gospel either. It's the employment of worldly themes and amusements that compromise the gospel. I've seen nowhere in the Bible that Jesus attracted crowds by doing puppet shows for the kids or having a belly dancing intermission between his messages. Why not? Because he wanted their minds on the things of God, not their sinful lusts or the entertainment he might have provided. Jesus took the teaching and preaching of the gospel seriously, and so should the church. So Christians, when you see the emphasis being placed on entertainment and not the gospel, it's time to examine what your church is doing and why it's doing it. Dr. Warren says his focus, excuse me. Dr. Warren says his focus is on the unchurched. He states that people, quote, people are attracted to churches with quality worship, preaching, ministry, and fellowship. Quality attracts quantity, unquote. Now, I cannot totally agree with this statement, uh, disagree with the statement. I agree that people will be attracted to quality. That's basic human nature. However, it's what you determine the definition of quality is that could become a bone of contention here. Warren says that his church is, quote, unapologetically a contemporary music church, unquote. He says he employs this type of music because, quote, their ears are accustomed to music with a strong bass line and rhythm, unquote. <laughs> are we as Christians really supposed to be giving the unsaved what they're accustomed to, or are we supposed to be giving them the gospel? This is an inarguable compromise with the world. How can we truly convert people from unbelief to belief in Christ if we fail to show them the difference between us and the world. Jesus Christ did not meet anyone halfway when preaching the gospel. Why should we? It appears that Warren's purpose is not to convert people, but to attract a large crowd, a crowd that will maybe eventually come to a decision for Christ, but maybe not. It doesn't seem that he's interested in reaching the lost. It looks like he's mainly interested in looking good with massive attendance. It would be easy for one to come to this conclusion because he places no emphasis on doctrine. All of his emphasis is placed on pleasing the crowd. Therefore, it's hard to believe he's truly concerned about the eternal destiny 
of the souls of the unsaved. He would rather give them what they want instead of what they need and be able to boast of the size of his ministry. I believe that his priority is quantity, and he gets it at the expense of the unsaved, for he doesn't place the emphasis on teaching them doctrine. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, let's look at the doctrine of repentance, for example. I read Dr. Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. This was a book that he says was intended to help one find his or her life's purpose. Well, I know what my life's purpose is. I found it in the Bible. And the Bible tells me that my purpose is to do the will of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, which says, quote, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, unquote. Our purpose is to do God's will and to live our lives to the credit and praise and glory of God. Why? Ephesians 2 Verse 10 says it, says it very nicely. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Our purpose is to do what God wants us to do, repent of our sin, believe in Jesus Christ, and do what he commands us to do. Does Dr. Warren teach the doctrine of repentance in his book? Well, I didn't even find one reference to repentance until chapter 13 of his book, The Purpose Driven Life, and it isn't mentioned as a critical doctrine necessary for salvation. It's mentioned as a form of worship only. Warren says, quote, Now God is pleased with different sacrifices of worship, thanksgiving, praise, humility, repentance, offerings of money, prayer, serving others, and sharing with those in need, unquote. Warren says that repentance is a form of worship, not a critical step to salvation. The doctrine of repentance is necessary to salvation, but Warren never states that in his book. In fact, he tells unbelievers that all they need to do is receive and believe. Where is repentance, Dr. Warren? You see, no emphasis placed on doctrine at least not on sound, fundamental, biblical doctrine, which brings me to my next subject. Now, Dr. Warren's theology is flawed, and not just a little. Now, if it was the speaking of tongues or the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we were talking about, we could probably just agree to disagree, and that would be the end of it, because those issues of doctrine are not critical to salvation. But when he chooses to delete the doctrine of repentance, which is actually the first step toward salvation, well, then we have a major problem. Not only is he compromising the true gospel of Christ by catering to worldly influences and interests, but he is promoting conceptual ideas, new age ideas, as gospel truth, which they cannot be. 
these new fresh concepts and ideas are not new and fresh at all and are not the gospel at all. And that makes them extremely dangerous to the church. I could devote an entire book to these heresies, but that may be another book, possibly. For now, I'll just highlight some of the obvious ones and discuss them briefly. One of these heresies that really is most alarming is found in a statement that Warren makes on page 88 of his book, The Purpose Driven Life. He states, quote, the Bible says he rules everything and is everywhere and is in everything, unquote. First of all, let me say that what Warren is saying here is that God lives in everything, in every part of his creation. This is what's called pantheism, new age thought, and is not biblical in any way, shape, or form. Now, Warren employs something called scripture fishing, which is a method of searching many different paraphrases or translations of the Bible until he finds one that says exactly what he wants it to say. In this instance, Warren uses a paraphrase translation called the New Century Version. He quotes the NCV paraphrase of Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 6b, which states that God lives in everything, or literally that God lives in every molecule of his creation, which he does not. The King James Version of the Bible states in Ephesians 4, verse 6a and b of the King James Version, quote, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. What Warren is not telling people in his book is that this statement in the Bible is not referring to all of God's creation, but only to the part of it that he has chosen to reside in, and that is those of us who have believed in him. The Holy Spirit resides in born-again believers in Christ and nothing else. Nowhere in the Bible does it state that God lives in every part of his creation. He does not and cannot live in something that is cursed because of sin. Remember, it's sin that separates us from God. So God cannot live in the trees and the birds and the sea life on earth because he cursed it due to man's sin. God separates himself from sin purposely. So therefore, he cannot live in everything he created. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 6 was a statement made to Christians, to believers in Christ, and refers to them only. Until Warren decides to retract this heretical teaching from his teaching repertoire, I will suggest to, the, to you that you cannot trust what he tells you or wants you to believe. It is not of God. It is a lie, a new age lie. It is a deceptive doctrine. Don't fall for it. There is another very troubling aspect about some of the things Dr. Warren has written in his books that I feel is important to mention. He makes many statements in his book about how he thinks God feels about certain things, things like worship, doubt, music, and a host of other issues. I found many of these statements to be extremely presumptuous, if not outright arrogant and incorrect biblically. I'd like for you to be made aware of some of them. He says on page 94 of The Purpose Driven Life, paragraph 1, quote, God listens to the passionate words of his friends. He is bored 
with predictable, pious cliches, unquote. So God is bored if you tell him that you love him every day? I think not. On page 104, paragraph 1, he says, quote, Jesus called thoughtless worship vain repetitions. Even biblical terms can become tired cliches from overuse, and we stop thinking about the meaning. It is so much easier to offer cliches in worship instead of making the effort to honor God with fresh words and ways. That is why I encourage you to read scripture in different translations and paraphrases. It will expand your expressions of worship, unquote. It occurs to me that all biblical terms come directly by inspiration of God, so it naturally follows logically that God will not consider your use of his word cliché. Not ever. When Dr. Warren says this, he is calling God's own word boring. And maybe it is boring to him. He seems to be changing it quite a bit to suit his own purpose. To say that God is bored with your traditional worship style or in the way that you show your love for him in prayer is heretical because my Bible says, Hebrews 13, chapter 13, verse 8, says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Unquote. Ladies and gentlemen, this ends this session of the Christian Underground News Network. Please continue with me in a few moments when I return, and we will finish Chapter 7 of The Judas Epidemic.